0: Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews and investigations at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. With the increasing global burden of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, can you provide kind of a state of play where we are now in terms of what are the current global efforts to combat these diseases, how optimistic are you that we're going to find some solutions relatively quickly and where might we expect the next big breakthrough to come from?
1: Yeah, so I am very optimistic Um, and in fact I would go so far as to say Alzheimer's is now optional and and becoming at least becoming optional very quickly. And here's what I mean by this. For my generation, and I'm I'm just turning 71, so I'm an old guy, but for my generation, this has been the biggest concern that people have had. Uh, If you ask, you know, what are you concerned about? People say getting Alzheimer's, losing my mind. And we're talking about something that dwarfs COVID. So in in the United States, over one million people were killed by COVID. Uh, Of the currently living Americans, about 45 million of us will die of Alzheimer's. So it really dwarfs the COVID pandemic. It's just, of course, that it's slower. Uh, So on the other hand, what we showed with our recent trial, and this is freely available online, you can look this up on Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, 84% of our people actually got better, which was unheard of before, that we're actually taking people who have cognitive decline and actually making them better. So my argument is your generation, the young people, should not have to worry. You should be the first generation that does not fear Alzheimer's. And to do that, you simply need to get on active prevention. When you turn 40, or if someone's already older than 40, get a cog, what we call a cognoscopy. Just like we all know, when you turn 50, you're supposed to get a colonoscopy. Everybody knows that. But when you turn 40, or if you're already over 40, please get a cognoscopy, get evaluated. You can actually see what are your risk factors, your genetic risk factors, your biochemical risk factors. Now, as you pointed out, where are things going? It's really interesting. This is a very exciting time because things are changing rapidly. There is the classic approach, which is we're gonna get a single drug and it's gonna cure the disease. Now that worked really well with simple infectious illnesses worked great with pneumococcal pneumonia and things like that, all sorts of infectious diseases, and even into HIV where you have to have three different drugs to get a really good impact, or at least two in some cases. Uh, But it was always about get a drug, it targets the problem. We've moved into a new era, 21st century disease, and this has been one of the problems with classical medicine. And I came through classical medicine trained classically But it became clear over time that the way I was trained is not the optimal way to approach complex chronic illnesses. And that's what virtually all of us are dying from now. So we're talking about neurodegenerative illnesses, we're talking about cancers, we're talking about cardiovascular illnesses, and then we're talking about these chronic infections, that, are, that often go undiagnosed, things like Lyme disease, now long COVID, things like this. These are fundamentally different from what we were di- dying from 100 years ago. And therefore, you have to approach them differently. And this is where precision medicine comes in for cancer. And this is what we're, we're looking at for Alzheimer's. So what you have is you have one group and actually it's billions and billions of dollars that are going into the production and the the development of the, the, the antibodies against amyloid. And this was a great idea in the 1990s. It's unfortunately out of date now and you can see it from the results. Uh, and so, so where, whereas some people are continuing to argue, oh, this is a breakthrough, this is huge, these things don't make you better and that's of course the goal here is to make people better what they do is instead of declining more rapidly you decline slightly less rapidly and you know one of the husbands of one of the patients with alzheimer's said to me you know these drugs that slow the decline when you have when you're living with someone who has significant alzheimer's that's the last thing you want this person is is you know is living in a horrible situation and do you really want to prolong that? So that's been the problem. You know, the, My argument is if you have SpaceX with Elon Musk and he tells you every time we send up uh, one of our spaceships, it explodes and kills everybody, but we've got a major breakthrough. It now explodes 27% later. Is that really a breakthrough? So what we'd like to do is have it so that it doesn't explode, so that the astronauts survive. And so we've got this whole group of people that's focused and being paid well to focus on that, unfortunately, is as, as was written. Uh, all of the op-eds that were written in support of these drugs were written by people who were paid by the drug companies that make the drugs. Now, wait a minute, you know, that that that's a problem. What about, you know, what about the best outcomes? So we want to focus on best outcomes. So that's a whole area of the field, and that is. Where the classic people are, you know, that is the mainstream medicine. If you go to any university center today, that's what they'll focus on. On the other hand, people like Dr. Lee Hood, who is the you know he's the the role model for so many of us. Just a brilliant, brilliant guy. Won the the Medal of Science from President Obama. He's the one that invented the DNA sequencer, as well as the peptide sequencer and the peptide synthesizer just a brilliant guy and a bioengineer. As he points out, and he's published recently a book with with uh, his protege, uh, Nathan Price, uh, that is called The Age of Scientific Wellness. And as he points out, we need to focus on the whole system here. Systems biology his, is his approach. And so uh, our, you know, what what my laboratory group and I came to was a very much the same conclusion. After thirty years in the lab, of studying what is actually driving the neurodegenerative process, what we found is that it is a network insufficiency. So when you get a degenerative disease, what that is saying to you is you have a network, whether it's the neuroplasticity network that is critical for Alzheimer's, whether it's uh, motor modulation that's critical for Parkinson's, whether it's motor power that's critical for ALS, whether it's macular support critical for macular degeneration, they all share in common that that particular subnetwork within the nervous system is being overdriven and or under supported. So there is a mismatch. Normally, you know, you're doing great, but over time, if you have too little support and too much demand, then you ultimately drive this into a state of decline. It's not terribly surprising. So, when you go after that, you can't just say there's one thing. You've got to look at the network, you have to characterize it. And when we characterize the network that is required to keep your brain in its beautiful neuroplasticity, we've been able to show that, okay, it really boils down to two major groups of things. Too much of the innate immune system activation. In other words, ongoing inflammation. And it's especially as Dr. Alexei Karakin, who's an interactomics expert pointed out, it's especially the memory component of the innate immune system. And then it's too little energetic support. And by that, I mean blood flow, oxygenation, mitochondrial function, and ketones, Something you got to have something to burn. And so if, when you now look at those, okay, everybody who has cognitive decline has a mismatch there. And it can be genetic because of the ApoE4, for example. It can be because you're exposed to inflammagens. And by the way, unfortunately, COVID-19 is one of them. So you know, get set for more people with Alzheimer's. That's already been published by epidemiologists. If you had COVID, you're at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it, It can be because you have a leaky gut. It can be because of changes in your oral microbiome. And all these things now for the first time fit with what the neuropathologists have been telling us for years, with what the epidemiologists have been telling us for years. So now we actually understand what Alzheimer's is. As you know, it's been claimed to be dozens of things. It's misfolded proteins, it's prions, it's amyloid, it's tau, it's uh, you know, uh, type 3 diabetes, it's herpes simplex of the brain, all these things. None of them has ever led to a successful treatment. And so when we, on the other hand, look for each person, ah, what are your drivers? then you actually address those things. And it's different for each person, no surprise. And we often find chronic infections. We often find chronic exposure to various toxins, be they inorganics like air pollution, organics like glyphosate, or biotoxins uh, like uh, you know, trichothecines and other mycotoxins, whatever they are. These things are critical. And we of course, we find people with sleep apnea. People have known for years, sleep apnea increases your risk. Why? Now we understand why. So you have to fix and address these things. And when you do, we've had the best outcomes in history. So very excited about that. And so really these two kind of polarized groups, my hope is that just like the PGA and live golf that nobody thought would come together and they've come together all of a sudden, that the pharmaceutical targeting. Will come together with the precision medicine protocols because the two will help each other. It makes no sense to try these drugs as monotherapeutics. You're addressing something that's far too complicated. It's kind of like saying, you know, what's the one paragraph that I can write that will be good for all chat GPT answers? No, it doesn't work that way. And that's the same thing with Alzheimer's.
0: With a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. It feels to me that there's a, a two-pronged approach. One, the preventative in the first place, where you can work with younger people to prevent these diseases from manifesting. But the far bigger issue is how do we reverse or, or or stop and then try to reverse in older patients where the the disease has already taken effect. I want to look at kind of the lifestyle interventions that younger people can consider. Yes. In, in, but first, in terms of actually halting and then reversing these kind of diseases, you, you've been at the forefront of this. I was really hoping you could tell me a little bit about some of the successes you've had and where you hope the major breakthroughs are going to come in actually reversing this. So someone who maybe one day might have Alzheimer's, but then is clear of it in the way that you can go into remission from, from cancer or other illnesses.
1: Absolutely. And it's been really striking. And you're right. I mean, we were the first to publish that back in 2014. We had another 100 patients we published in 2018. But of course, those are single cases. So, you know, even though it's 100 people, it doesn't give you a denominator. Uh, and so that's why we then did our proof of concept trial, which is freely available online. We published that last year. And that was only 25 people, but 21 of them actually improved, something that was unheard of before. And now we're in a larger randomized controlled trial at six different sites. So we're really excited about that. That's in. Hollywood Florida, Nashville Tennessee, Cleveland Ohio, and then Sacramento in California, Oakland and San Francisco. Very excited about that. I'm working with some absolutely outstanding functional medicine physicians, uh, Craig Tannio and and uh, David Hasse and and uh, Nate Bergman, Christine Burke, uh, and cat uh, Tubes uh, and Anne Hathaway, so very excited about that. So you're right. It, these are two different things and absolutely it is easier to do prevention. And I would go a, a step further. You go through four phases we now know with Alzheimer's. So you have an asymptomatic phase, which may last several years, and you can already show changes in people in their 20s and 30s on PET scans and spinal fluid, but these people are asymptomatic. But then the second phase is subjective cognitive impairment. You know there's something that's not right. You're not remembering phone numbers. You may have occasional problems when you're driving. But you're still able to score normally on cognitive testing. So by definition, that's SCI. The next stage in, by the way, SCI lasts on average 10 years. So we have a tremendous opportunity. If everybody would simply come in and these two, get on prevention or immediately when you have any symptoms, you wouldn't see much dementia. It would be the rare problem that it should be. The problem is everything is being done on these last two phases. The third phase out of four is called mild cognitive impairment. That was a terrible choice. It should never be called mild. It's a relatively late stage of Alzheimer's. It's like telling someone, don't worry, you've only got mildly metastatic cancer. Um, This is a late stage of the problem, and this is when the drug studies are done, MCI, and then full-blown dementia, as you mentioned. So what happens is we see the best outcomes in the early stages. We can make people better. The SCI people, pretty much 100% of them get better. The MCI people, as we showed in our trial, 84% we can make better, but it's harder, and they don't always get completely back to normal, whereas the SCIs typically come back completely normal. The dementia patients, some of them get better. And it's something like 30 or 40%, but it depends heavily on when you start. If you're starting... So let me give you what you mentioned. What about an example? Here's one from just a couple days ago. We've had thousands who have reversed their cognitive decline. And uh, actually, we've published some of these. I wrote a book about it called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Seven of the people who got better wrote their own stories. And I have to say, if you can get through all seven of those stories without a tear, uh, then uh, you're an impressive guy because uh, the stories are amazing. These people who were told that you know they're going to die. One of the women, uh, her father was dying of Alzheimer's, literally in the last stages when she was first diagnosed. Uh, when first had her her abnormal studies, they hadn't given her a formal diagnosis yet, but she knew something's not right. And her mother, uh, her her father's mother, her her. Uh, paternal grandmother had already died of Alzheimer's. And she also had ApoE4, the classic uh, uh, risk factor gene for all the most common risk factor gene for Alzheimer's. Uh, And she did great and has improved and has stayed improved. And it was great to see that. So it's really striking to see these stories. So one from just a few days ago, and this is we're working with a wonderful health coach uh, in New York who's Carrie Mills Rutland and her husband, Tim and they interact with their patients, make sure they get the right things, get them to the right doctors. I go over some of the patients with her. They get appropriate reports. Now they're looking at larger data sets. It's not, again, it's not 20th century medicine where you look at tiny data sets and give a drug. It's 21st century medicine. You look at larger data sets and you have a network that you are dealing with. So this person actually came in with PCA, which is posterior cortical atrophy. That is one of the non-amnestic presentations of Alzheimer's disease. Not terribly common, but well-known, described by D. Frank Benson, the late, great uh, Dr. Benson, who was a professor at UCLA for for many years. Um, And this was called Benson's syndrome. Uh, so you, people have problem because it's posterior cortical. They have problems with recognition of shapes and things like that. They often have vision problems. Like wait a minute, my vision something's wrong. And it turns out yes, it's really the it's the interpretation of the vision. But they also then lose memory and ultimately die of Alzheimer's disease. So she scored only 16 out of 30 on the MoCA. So she was already into the dementia category. 19 to 22 is this is the overlap between MCI once you're you know down at 19 18 and below that's typically full on dementia so her so she got on our protocol and it turned out she actually had multiple things so she had recurrent outbreaks of herpes was one of the things so she was treated with antivirals appropriately she turned out to have bartonella which is a tick-borne illness relatively common Often goes undiagnosed, so she had to be treated for her Bartonella, and then she also had mycotoxin exposure. That's something that's not even recognized by the classical Alzheimer's foundations as being a cause, but it's a relatively common cause. So she was had to be you know, had to be treated for all of those things, but also improved her gut function, also improved her her insulin sensitivity, and then interestingly, she was already improving some. I asked Carrie. Please consider adding Ewat, which is exercise with oxygen therapy, which s- supports better blood flow, better oxygenation. And boom, she really took off with that. Uh, and so her, you know, her uh, mocha went back up to 21. Now, 21 is not perfect yet, but her symptoms were just dramatically better. What was interesting is her MRI was dramatically better. So when you have PCA, because it's posterior, you typically lose some, you get some atrophy in your parietal and occipital lobes. Her parietal lobes were at less than one percentile for her age. So she had very significant atrophy, fit perfectly with her presentation uh, in her parietal lobes. Now she had some temporal atrophy as well, which is less affected in these uh, PCA patients. So her temporal lobe went way up. And interestingly, her parietal lobe went from less than one percentile To the 23rd percentile for her age. And that's just dramatic improvement. Uh, And with that, she noticed improvements, her husband noticed improvements, Carrie noticed improvements, and of course she scored better on her cognitive testing because the things that were actually driving the problem were identified and were addressed. So that's the future. And I think that, you know, again, I'd like to then be able to add targeted drugs, uh, and the idea of removing amyloid as the only thing you're doing is a horrible idea. As again, Dr. Lee Hood says in his book, amyloid is an excellent biomarker because it's coming out when you've got these insults, but it's a lousy target for a drug because there are you want to go after the insults, you're not trying to go after the, your body's response. It's a little bit like if you take someone with leprosy. So imagine someone comes in with leprosy and you say, wow, I've I've got a great drug that removes granulomas. Well, the granuloma is a response to the mycobacterium leprae that's giving you leprosy. So removing the granulomas is not the way to go.
0: I can only imagine for families who are affected by Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, seeing this improvement, feeling like you're getting a family member back, seeing more of the old person must be an incredibly moving and and just thrilling experience to try and regain that person who you were in fear of losing. How far away are we from seeing a solution for everyone who's currently got this? What needs to happen also? I mean, where are the key stumbling blocks before you can be very confident that a combination of new drugs, personalised medicine, the other things you've talked about are going to lead to 100% reversal for everyone afflicted by these illnesses?
1: That is such a great question, and I ask myself that almost every day. So my so what we've seen is we've seen people go from scores of eighteen out of thirty on the MoCA scores. so this is you know early dementia, to perfect thirty, um, and that's been that's been fantastic outcome. We've seen people go from zero, which is end stage dementia, to nine. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but they're able to dress themselves again. They're able to speak again. They're able to interact. I got a, interestingly, I got a nasty uh, email from a guy a couple of years ago who said, you know, you said people should only do this, this sort of protocol if they're in relatively early stages. Well, let me tell you something. My wife has a MOCA score of zero. She's in a nursing home and she's gotten a lot better and we're happy with her. And if we would listened to you, we wouldn't have done this. So, okay, I was happy to hear she'd done so much better, but we've never seen anyone go from zero to a perfect 30. That's my goal before I leave this earth. Could we get people? And as you indicated, what would it take? We don't know yet, but we do know there are three things you have to do. You have to get rid of the drivers, and they are anything that's increasing you know, ongoing inflammation. You know, when you die of COVID 19, you typically die of cytokine storm. When you die of Alzheimer's, you die of cytokine drizzle. It's the same cytokines, but they're going along for 20 years instead of 20 days. And so this. Uh, so the, we have to get rid of the drivers. The second thing is we've got to build up resilience. So we need to make it so that you are able to make and store new synapses. Now with those two alone, we can take people that are doing this, but what, all we do is we stop it. They, they completely stop. It. And we see that all the time. They They don't go down anymore. And by the way, there's a wonderful uh, assisted living facility in San Diego. The first one that's open that that does our protocol uh, was opened by Dr. Heather Sanderson. She's done an absolutely great job and it's called Marama. So in their in their case, nobody's getting worse. I mean, this is again, unheard of for assisted living. So these people are coming in late when they need assisted living. But the trick then is what you were talking about. How do you then return them to normal? So now you've got to add back. You might've stopped the process but you've already lost a lot of synapses, again, which is why we want to start people as early as possible. So now you've got to build that back. What does it take? Well, first of all, stem cells are going to occupy an important therapeutic locale uh, in the future. So we're going to be able to rebuild things now partly with those, but it's not yet perfect. Some of the reprogramming that David Sinclair has been talking about, this where he's gotten good results with ocular disease, great. This may be very helpful in your brain. Um, and I think intranasal trophic factors, things like div- divunitide, by the way, which is a fragment of, of activity-dependent neurotrophic peptide. Uh, These things are going to be very important. Nerve growth factor, insulin, BDNF, all of these things are going to be helpful intranasally because you can get them into the brain. Uh, But some of these have already failed because they tried them as monotherapies. This is more complicated than that. You have to do the right thing at the right time. What we've seen is this is a lot more like surgery than it is like old fashioned medicine. You've got to know what your armamentarium is. You do the right things in the right sequence at the right time, you get the best outcomes. So I, like you, am fascinated by this question. What will it take for a full cure for people who are at end stage? We're clearly not there yet, but it's going to take more on the evaluation and it's going to take, which I think that part we can do, it's going to take more on the stem cell side to restore the lost synapses, which is why I believe the first uh, best way uh, that we could things that we can do now is to get people in those first two stages. If we could just get people to come in for prevention or earliest reversal, dementia would be a rare problem. Uh, And and that's the thing. You've got a long run up where you can do a lot. It's those people who wear I And I feel bad, you know, poor people like Bruce Willis. Such a great guy, such an icon in Hollywood. And all of these people are, you know, they, they get these problems, and people know for years something's not quite right, but they're told nothing can be done. They're not really evaluated enough. And it's so sad to see a loss of these wonderful human beings. My hope is we won't see the loss of such human beings in the future. We will have active prevention and early reversal.
0: Looking at, at lifestyle interventions because there's so many lifestyle factors that that are led to believe to to dementia and other neurodegenerative illnesses in, in later life. Could you talk about some of the lifestyle interventions that, in your experience, have been the most beneficial in staving off the risk of, of Alzheimer's and other diseases?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, And so there are seven basics. We think of these as the B7, the basic seven. And then there are things that are specific to people. So you ultimately, you want to have... The most important thing you can do is get evaluated. That's the key. Uh, Get a cognoscopy, find out what are your risks, your genetic risks, your biochemical risks, your toxicological risks, etc but you can start with some basics. And then the hope for the future to make it most efficient is that everybody would do the basics. And then those people who slip through the cracks, okay, now you're gonna do more things. And then you have a a pyramidal sort of approach so that only a few people have to get these very extensive workups. Most of us can do well with just the basics. So the basic seven are, and we'll talk about the specifics of, of these, what you have to do, but it's diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, Detox and some targeted supplements. Those are the basic seven. So, you want to, and you know, critical things for each of these. Now, those aren't a guarantee, but for most people, they will do very well. And the goal, of course, is to keep everyone sharp to 100. So, for diet, it turns out that the diet that works the best is a plant rich, mildly ketogenic diet with lots of phytonutrients, lots of fiber improving your gut microbiome, imp- healing any leakiness of your gut. These, this is the way that's worked the best. And for exercise, what's worked the best interestingly is ewat exercise with oxygen therapy. Uh, and the, some people like to use the, the uh, restriction bands, so-called katsu bands. Um, these were used by some of the Olympic athletes. Uh, it basically gives you more bang for your buck. Um, for sleep, Professor Matthew Walker from UC Berkeley has written a whole wonderful book, Why We Sleep. Uh, and so you know his he goes into their their critical pieces. And so you want at least an hour each night of deep slow wave sleep. So you want to get into that deep sleep, which you tend to get earlier in, in the night, and then you want to have at least an hour and a half of REM sleep. These are both critical, and they're critical for detox, and they're critical for memory formation. They're critical to prevent neurodegeneration. And of course, they're critical to remove uh, damaged cells and damaged fragments and things like that. The glymphatic system was you know, a discovery of a few years ago, uh, which has been very interesting in terms of keeping your, your brain healthy. And then you want to manage stress. We were made to have a little bit of stress and then resolve it. You have some stress, you resolve it. That's okay. Have some stress, resolve it. But so many of us now have this chronic stress and that damages your brain, it actually shrinks your brain. As long as your amygdala is on high alert and like, oh my God, you know we're under assault, you can't back down. You can't actually relax it, it turns out to be very helpful. So things that as a scientist, I used to laugh at like meditation and things turn out to be, I can't deny the data. The data are striking. They're good for neuroplasticity. They're good for blood pressure. They're good for your cortisol. They're good for your lifespan. They're good for you know myocardial infarction prevention. All those things. Um, so whatever it is that helps you to deal with your stress, whether it's shinroku, you know, getting out in forest bathing, whether it's you know TM, uh, whether it's uh, you know whether it's um, uh, yoga, uh, whether it's music, whatever you like. Get that heart rate variability up. And I do think, by the way, Joe, I think that wearables are going to be one of the best things for prevention of chronic illness. Being able... I mean, look at what we can do now. You can follow your heart rate variability. You can follow your sleep stages. You can look at your microbiome, both oral and gut microbiome. You can look at your telomere length. You can look at so many of these things, um, uh, you know, do you you know close your rings every day and you know look whether whether you've got your ten thousand steps in. so there it's amazing what we can do. And this is going to be a huge help in reducing these complex chronic illnesses because so many people were living on the edge. They didn't realize they had virtually no heart rate variability. They're under stress all the time. They're not getting much sleep, all these sorts of things. So that's another piece. And then, of course, uh, brain training, as I mentioned before, a uh, beautiful work from Professor Mike Mersnick, who is the father of brain training and, and uh, started positive science and does Brain HQ, and, which has been very helpful. And we included that in our, in our protocol for uh, the tri- clinical trial we did. Um, and then detox. Uh, I was not taught as a training neurologist how important these toxins are. Yes, everybody knew about you know, massive mercury exposure and things like that, but people didn't realize, especially some of these biotoxins that we're exposed to for years and years. And then finally, some targeted supplements and you know making sure you have optimal levels of vitamin D and magnesium, omega-3s that you don't have a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. You, you could spend hours just talking about that. So those are the basic seven.
0: Just focusing on on detox very, very quickly. Yes. It's a term in the health and wellness industry that's almost got a bit of a bad reputation because it's something that a lot of people use that phrase to yeah. try and sell something. What do you mean in this context, context when you say detox? Is that simply flushing out your brain of detritus and the other debris that accumulates? Is it the heavy metals? What does it kind of look like and how do you do that?
1: Such a good point. And you know, what what happened when we first started seeing people reverse their cognitive decline? Uh, the first paper I published back in 2014 on this, one of the 10 patients didn't improve. And I thought, what you know, what did we do wrong? What what went wrong here? And so we started looking more. And then we started seeing there's a whole group of patients that were much harder to improve. And I thought, you know, there's something. They look different. Often they will they often present differently. They're often younger. These are people, the typical one is early 50s. Uh, When I was training, we never saw people in their 50s with Alzheimer's. It was a disease of your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Now we know it starts 20 years before the diagnosis. So it's really a disease of your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that's getting diagnosed 20 years later. But we see a lot of them now, and this has been shown by the epidemiologists. There is an explosion of Alzheimer's presenting in people in their late 40s and early 50s, Uh, really scary. And these people turn out, we ultimately determined most of these people had major toxic exposures. And they boil down to three different types as I mentioned earlier. One is the inorganics. So air pollution, high levels of mercury, whether it's uh, inorganic mercury from amalgams or whether it's organic from seafood, especially the the big fish. You wanna keep with the, the little fish the short live ones that don't have a lot of mercury in them, uh, and so things like uh, you know salmon and mackerel and anchovies and sardines and herring, her- uh, and herring, so-called smash fish, not the big guys, the tuna, the shark, the things like that. And so um, th- those are those are the keys. But if you look at this, it's again, it's the it's the inorganics, then the organics, toluene, benzene, glyphosate. These things are all critical and looking to see what is your burden. What happens is you deal with this in your body, you're excreting it, you're metabolizing it, you're storing it. So you're actually putting it in your bones, you're putting it in your brain, you're putting it in other places for years. And what happens is as we get a little older, we basically fill up our ability to deal with these. And in fact, as you're approaching menopause, if you're a woman or andropause, if you're a man, your bones are changing, right? And so now what's happening is you're re-emptying these things back into your bloodstream. And we believe that that's why it's so common for people in their early 50s to present with this toxin-associated Alzheimer's disease. And the, the biotoxins have been really tough and very common. And so it's typically five different mold species that make these. It's stachybotrys, Penicillium aspergillus, ketomium, and wallemia. Those are the big five. Many other species aren't, aren't producing these things. Those are the bad ones. So, you can measure these things. I mean, a urine test, very simply. You can also measure, as Dr. Richie Shoemaker taught all of us years ago, you can measure the response the body has to these mycotoxins. And unfortunately, it's exactly the response that increases Alzheimer's disease. It is a chronic, innate immune system, mostly response, which gives you this heightened, well, you've got memory. You're basically saying, I've been exposed to this in the past. And therefore, when I see it again, I'll have a hyper response. And that lives in your bone marrow. It lives in your endothelial cells, so lining your blood vessels, and it lives in your tissue macrophages, which for the brain are your microglia. Those are the three sites where your innate immune system memory lives, and so now what's going to happen is you're cranked up, and so when you get exposed to something, bam, you have an over response, which again just contributes to the decline. Uh, what you know, what we call Alzheimer's disease is really the brain's protective response to these repeated insults. And So, okay, we see a pathology, but let's find out what those insults are and let's deal with them.
0: Of the seven lifestyle interventions you mentioned, it feels to me as though six of them would very much be in my control, the diet, the sleep, the brain brain training, the others you mentioned. When it comes to these toxins, Yes. What what is the ideal strategy? Because obviously you want to prevent or minimise your exposure to them. Is that viable in the in the modern world? And then secondly, what can you do if you are concerned that you have been exposed? How do you how do you detox?
1: Yeah, great point. And so again, it boils down to these three things. Number one, find out your exposure and reduce it. Number two, do the basics to you know to reduce it. For example, if you're going to go in for an operation. Optimize your glutathione before you get the anesthetic. Uh, We hear this all the time. Someone went in, you know. My mother went in. She had an operation. She was under anesthesia for two hours. She came out. She seems to be getting dementia. You know, it's never been the same. Yes, that's a common precipitant of dementia. So, ahead of time, get ready. Talk to you know, and we have put. I put this in the books. You can, you know talk to the anesthesiologist, talk about what kind of anesthesia you're going to get, how long it's going to be to make sure your blood pressure is optimal during this time, to make sure you don't get hypoxic. And then when you finish, make sure that you actually wipe you know wipe out this this uh, uh, anesthetic as quickly as possible. So it's reducing your exposure. It's some basics. And the basics are things like saunas, sweating repeatedly. You know, this is again another thing that where exercise helps. Uh, get you know, get sweaty several times a week, um, and then get a non-toxic bath or shower right after that with things like Castile soap, because in that sweat are all sorts of toxins. And then of course, other elimination sites. So through your gut, through your urination, as I mentioned, the sweating, all these things, and through breath, all of these things are ways that your body has. Your body is constantly pushing back against the environment that is trying to kill it. And and you know you said something important, which is we are all exposed to this these days. You know what do you do? you live if you're living in a city with lots of air pollution, you're exposed to it. So the, this old fashioned idea of going to spas, getting away every once in a while, you know it's interesting. One of the guys who was one of the earliest exposed people was the Incline Village uh, syndrome, which is a which w- was chronic fatigue had major mycotoxin exposure. And he's spent the rest of his life as an activist looking at all these things, and he's done a beautiful job. I really have to credit him with that. And he's helped a lot of other people because of that. And what he found is going out to the desert for a few days, you just get rid of all this other stuff, really was the thing that helped him the most. And then making sure, sulforaphane, great way to go. Um, glutathione, whether it's liposomal, some people like intranasal glutathione. But finding out where you're, you are you, my wife who's a, who, who is a, a, uh, who's an integrative physician, points out, you know it's you you're filling up your bucket. You know you can your body can handle so much of this, but unfortunately, once you get to the top, things are spilling over. And people then get these chemical sensitivities that are so common. They're really telling you, my bucket is full. I can't handle any more of this. I see all the time when people come in with toxin-related Alzheimer's, their glutathione levels are way down. One of the first things that was found biochemically for Parkinson's was that on average, these people had very low glutathione levels. And of course, it's turned out that Parkinson's is largely a toxin-driven disease. It is dramatically on the upswing because of all these toxins we're exposed to. And there's a nice book that came out from Dorsey and and colleagues, um, which is called A Prescription for Action, uh, uh, Ending Parkinson's, A Prescription for Action. A fantastic idea. Uh, And looking at all these people who were exposed to these different toxins, again, being aware of it. The problem has been that because our medical system is not set up to handle this new medicine, everybody wants to stick their heads in, you know, in the sand and just say, it doesn't exist. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to go there. We don't want to open that can of worms. And unfortunately, you know, we're all sicker for it. So things are changing. This is why I say this is such an exciting time. We're learning new things all the time. More is coming out about longevity. And interestingly, because of the tests, you can prove it, you can show. With methylation patterns, yes, you are biologically a few years younger because you did the right things. We're doing this in our new study as well. We'll be able to look at brain aging and say, okay, did we make these people's brains not just better but also younger? So again, very exciting times. And yes, there's a lot you can do to detox um, and starting with finding out if you're exposed and finding out what your levels are and then addressing those.
0: Follow up from that is to do with the the gut brain axis because there's been a lot yes. of research into in, into gut health, particularly with Parkinson's, but with other um, neurodegenerative yes. diseases as well. How mm-hmm. hopeful are you by what the research is is showing in this field? Could this be uh, a potential area of which we find uh, real insight that's going to lead or accelerate the the, the 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 chase towards a cure?
1: Absolutely, and it's been shown. Uh, and Actually, I wrote a chapter for David Perlmutter's book on this a few years ago. It's been shown that the microbiomes on average are different in Alzheimer's patients than they are in non-Alzheimer's patients. And it's been shown that you can actually in, in rodent models, you can change the microbiome and get improvements in the brain. So as you said, there is this beautiful back and forth. There is an axis and it's important in Parkinson's and it's important in Alzheimer's and probably in other neurodegenerative diseases as well. The problem so far is that the microbiome sequencing is showing it's very complex. So it's not, you know, people will grab onto one thing. Oh, we gotta give you more acromansia or we gotta give you more prosnitziae, or, you know, whatever it is. It's not that simple yet. Um, I do think alterations of the microbiome in a positive direction will turn out to be very powerful. And right now, as Professor Rob Lustig shows, as he always says, you know, feed the gut, protect the liver. So yes, you want to feed your gut. You want to have appropriate prebiotics. And now you know we want probiotics, prebiotics, and postbiotics. So you also want things like short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, and things that are so important. So again, we come back to this is a network. It doesn't work alone. Uh, The idea that I'm just going to fix a a misfolded protein, and now everything's going to be okay. That's 20th century thinking. And this is a complex network, and we're beginning to understand the network. And the exciting thing is, we're beginning to be able to manipulate the network, and we see what happens when we do that. We get improvements. So, you know, we're not there to go from zero to 30 yet, but we'll get there. Uh, but we can already make unprecedented improvements. And I think uh, at this point, as far as prevention, Alzheimer's is is really optional. I would I would argue that everyone should get on prevention.
0: Many people are incredibly excited and optimistic by personalized medicine and and, and significant yeah. changes to the healthcare system where you could factor in, you know, wearables that are giving you day-to-day feedback on how you're doing is almost the entry point. But then looking at a complete breakdown of your your your, your genetic code, complete breakdown of all of the genetic risk risk factors you have, and so you can begin to build a complete picture of an individual's health from potentially from before birth, and, and then monitor it through. How excited are you by this transition towards a truly personalised approach and is this going to be the cure not just for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, but could this be the, the panacea for everything? Are we going to be able to eradicate cancer and leukaemia and any you know every single disease under the sun because we're treating an individual purely as an individual and giving them what they need, not basing all their treatment on what works for the average or for the mean?
1: right so this is exactly what we're doing this is exactly what we can't came from the test tubes to say okay this is a network you can't just do one little simple thing now here's the interesting thing 20th century was the was the century of simple illnesses diphtheria tuberculosis polio and those were conquered largely by simple approaches, and I include vaccines in that with things like polio and things, but you know, antibiotics and public health measures. That was the big success of 20th century medicine. What happened? We all now have these more complex chronic illnesses. So I agree with you. The 21st century is the century to, to conquer complex uh, chronic illnesses, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other neurodegenerative conditions. Cancers, as you said, things like leukemia, but also things like schizophrenia. So, my argument, and actually, I made this in one of the books, that by the end of this century, these things will all be rare diseases, lupus, all the things where we didn't really understand what it was. We just gave it a name. <clears throat> and that's, you know, lupus and PSP and CBD and all these sorts of things. But When we conquer those, and it's going to be, as you said, it's going to be all these things, there are two issues. Number one, we can't give every single person on the planet a $10 million workup. It's just not feasible yet. So we need now to have strategic public health approaches where what we do is we take everyone and do the basics. A few of those people will fall through the cracks. They get a more extensive workup. A couple of those people will fall and you just go right up the list. So now overall, the resources work. This this idea that everyone's got to have genetics and epigenetics and, and all the biochemistry, that's the first piece. The other piece is once we conquer those, then the next set of things that limits the organisms that we are is going to come into focus and i think that's going to be more about the fundamentals of aging up until now aging has been mostly you suck at living and that's been the major thing that drives aging is you know you ate an inflammatory diet you did all the wrong things you got heart disease you know you got cancers you were exposed to all sorts of toxins when we get rid of that chronic illness approach now it's going to be okay uh, is it your telomeres that are going to limit you? Is it going to be the batteries run down? Uh, can we get you more mitochondria? It's going to be the things that Aubrey uh, talks about, and I think that's going to be really interesting. But it's going to be now a new—that's the you know the next uh, you know the next great frontier. So I do look for these chronic illnesses to be largely preventable and reversible, especially early on in this century.
0: You'll outline of, of how the future of medical treatment no one could have an issue with getting on board with that as a philosophy it, it makes perfect sense to give everyone the fundamental treatment they need at that first measure preventative all the way it sounds great the trouble is that's a complete inversion of the current system we've got where you only begin to get treatment once you're probably almost too far down the road in certain yes. to see a reversal my question is what what is going to have to change to make this huge public policy just a complete change of the landscape how we call, how we consider medicine how everything has to change is it too big an ask
1: you know this is uh, th- this is the the huge question because it's what's limiting us right now uh, and i've been surprised you, you, when you say to someone you've got a medical and a healthcare system please, let's change. Well, let's add one little bit to this. We'll keep the system in place." That's pretty easy and that's what's been going on for many, many years. We're now saying, no, you've got to destroy that entire system and replace it with a better system. You can imagine the the, the people who are there do not want to be replaced. So this goes back you know, to Uh, Buckminster Fuller, as he says, you know, you don't don't work from within. You create something that makes the current system obsolete. And that's what's ongoing right now. We are showing that the current system is obsolete when it comes to these chronic illnesses. So, what it's going to take is, uh, you know, it's going to take champions with influence. Um, You know, it's going to be someone from a congressman's family got sick and got better because of one approach and not another approach. It's that sort of thing. And people, you know, you're already seeing this with people, uh, you know, doing things like well you, you know you, you probably saw this Jeff Bezos just put in over a billion dollars to reprogram cells. So okay, I mean, you know, that's a you know, that's a huge step. Uh, And that's not going to be something that's going to be easy to do for every single person. So we we need though to we need to reevaluate. It's going to take you know going. It's going to take Congress going to NIH and saying, please reconsider. We're now going to change the healthcare system. And of course, the problem has been healthcare is all about making dollars, and the way to do that is charge people as much as you can up front and give them as little as you can on the back end. What a horrible system. I mean that's a scam, that's not a system. And so it's going to take people saying, you know what, we can do better. And I think the way that we're going to get there is continue to publish better and better results with using these new approaches until you just can't ignore it. It's fascinating to me that scurvy, you know, scurvy was was recognized 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and yet each time the medical establishment would say, no, 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 that's that's not the way to do it. We're, we're the experts. We know better. And so they lost so many people to scurvy because they weren't willing to admit that, yes, yeah, there is something going on here. We got to treat, we got to get citrus into these people. Uh, and the same thing happened with germ theory, of course. Uh, Semmelweis in the early 1800s was killed because he showed that you can actually reduce the number of people who would die after childbirth by washing your hands in an appropriate solution but because people didn't understand what germs were at that time they said that's ridiculous they actually ended up uh, confining him against his will uh to a to a uh to a mental health facility where ironically he died of an infection very shortly so you, uh you know things got to change
0: do you feel that health systems such as in the UK with the National Health Service and the single-payer system where such a huge proportion of the NHS budget is spent on the elderly. is by far the, the most expensive part of the healthcare system. Do you feel that maybe countries such as the UK could be a trailblazer in this respect? Because we could see as people live longer and we are all living longer, there becomes yeah. a huge emphasis to, to make sure people are living healthier not just longer and that quality of yeah. life is there if you can remove some of that burden on the budget such as the NHS by removing neurodegenerative diseases do you feel that that could help maybe sway the conversation in the US and other systems where there it, it is purely insurance based
1: it's a great point and and you know it's interesting uh, i've thought for years that the place that is going to make this work first is singapore because it's a small group, they're very, they're very sophisticated. They're very interested in uh, healthcare, uh, and in fact, they're very interested in dementia. Now, as you probably know, dementia is the number one cause of death in UK females, and number two cause of death overall for the UK. So, this is a huge problem. But what it, what happens? You have experts who have done it the old-fashioned way for years. And they're always going to be consulted. So when are those experts going to say, you know what, maybe we've been going down the wrong track trail, and maybe you know we should be doing this uh, differently? So yeah, I think. But I think the UK is in a good position uh, because it has a rational and powerful government to say, you know what, we really got to rethink this. Uh, and and so you know my hope is that that you know that, that would be one of the earlier places, and then places like the U.S., where it's all about the almighty dollar, would say, hmm, you know, maybe we could do better by by changing this.
0: Your work has gone against conventional wisdom, and and some of the experts you've just mentioned, uh, and like anyone it, it, with pioneering breakthroughs, you're going to attract a, a deal of criticism and, and, and critics. What do you think some of the main misconceptions are about your work that you'd like to to put the record straight?
1: Yeah. Thanks for offering that because yeah, I've been absolutely vilified by uh, by some of these people. There's a graduate student in Paris who's kind of making it his job to say, I'm a horrible person and this is not the way to do it. We got to get a drug for this. And look, I have no problem with getting a drug as long as they work. So it's about outcomes. Everything that should be done should be about outcomes. Can we reduce the global burden of dementia? So one criticism was, okay, you're publishing case studies. Yes, you have to start somewhere. When you're changing a fundamental approach to an illness where there has been nothing before, you have to start somewhere. So bear with us. We've gone from few case studies to many case studies, a hundred that we published at once with documented improvements, to a proof of concept trial, and now to a randomized controlled trial. Now I realize some people will just keep putting the bar higher, 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 higher. We've already done better, but, but let's at the same time look at compassionate use. Everybody understands the term compassionate use. If you've got a drug that's you know for one disease and you say, wait a minute, it looks like even though it's not yet approved for something else, it's the only thing that can help people with X, that's compassionate use and it's been very valuable at times. So what we've been doing is compassionate use. Let's do the best we can for these people, and let's at the same time encourage them to come in earlier. So that would be the next thing I would say is you know g- you know g- give us a chance to make these people better. And then look, uh, let's let's be honest about the trial outcomes. When you look at the drugs, lecanumab, donecanamab, atacanamab. These, there have been billions spent on these. What they do is they don't make you better, they don't keep you the same. They slow the decline slightly. What has done better than those drugs? Number one, extra virgin olive oil alone. There's a publication on this. It actually got better results than those drugs. Number two, ketones alone. This was very nice work published by Professor Stephen Canane. Number three, so-called combined metabolic activators. It's four things like nicotinamide riboside that are simply trying to give you more energy. And again, as we talked about earlier, that makes sense in Alzheimer's, but you've got to also go in the long run, you've got to also go after the immune system but doing that helps people. They got much better results than those drugs. And then, of course, the approach that we have taken has gotten the best results of all. So let's focus on the outcomes and let's quit focusing on this is the way we've always done it. Medicine has been too much, unfortunately, about tradition and permission instead of disruption. In Silicon Valley, right here, a few miles from where I live, it's all about disruption. Let's do something new, let's do something different. But medicine needs to be a little more Silicon Valley and a little less tradition and permission when it comes to untreatable diseases. Sure, uh, you know we can do a good appendectomy, no reason to change that. But when you're talking about degener- neurodegenerative disease, if you've got nothing, something is better than nothing if it's getting better outcomes.
0: Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.